Welcome to another special edition of Kibbe on Liberty, COVID edition. We are still using Skype and we are still remote, but we are going to dig into data today. I never thought I would do a show about this. I always aspired to do music and comedy, but I feel like we all need to understand what's going on with these estimates about the impact of various COVID scenarios. And I'm going to argue that economists and econometrics and, and assumptions, these are the things that are actually going to determine how we best deal with all of these problems. And I brought on a friend and, and an econ a, a economic historian, Phil Magnus. Hey, Phil. Magnus. Hey, Phil. How's it going? Hey, doing great. You are in virtual lockdown in Virginia. Your governor exactly. has, has mandated some pretty draconian things. Draconian things. Yeah, uh, extended it through, I think June 10th is now our date when we can go back outside again, pending uh, any reversal in his decision. Yeah, and I'm, I'm wondering um, how all of this is determined, uh, what is essential and what's not and who decides. But there is a threat in Virginia, which which I'm not sure I've seen elsewhere, but I'm sure it's out there, that, that violating the governor's mandate could get you a year in federal prison, not federal, state prison, I guess. I don't right, know. Right, I guess I don't right, know. Right, right. Yeah, with discretionary power handed over to the police uh, in an indeterminate timeline. Perfect well, combination. So our mayor has decided that I will be locked down subject to similar restrictions tomorrow. I, I barely knew what her name was until she told me that I wasn't allowed to leave my house. But but I, I go off on a tangent. Uh, why don't you tell everybody you're with, you're a senior research fellow with the American Institute for Economic Research. I'm a big fan of the work that you guys have been doing since day one, but particularly during this crisis. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do there and, and what your background and what your background is. Yeah, so my uh, general background is I'm an economic historian and I work uh, mostly on tax policy. Uh, both the 19th and 20th century, some of the relation to that between uh, taxation and the inequality debate, do a lot of number crunching in that, uh, some higher education policy, and then just general historical themes. But, uh, you know, as we've seen in the last few uh, months, uh, quite a few of these topics have been set aside as we've migrated over into addressing the current crisis. So uh, AIER, where I, I work, uh, has been trying to um, enter into this debate by offering a tempered analysis of everything from data to consideration of what the policy responses are, unanticipated consequences of some of the decisions that we're making and on what seems to be a very hasty basis, and uh, you know, trying to get that information out there so we can have a rational discussion of everything that we're facing instead of this normal um, atmosphere of media hype that seems to be. Yeah, I, th I think... Um... It does seem like a number of our public officials, and I, th I think uh, what's his name, Anthony Fauci. Yeah. What, what is his title? Do you do you remember? Do you do you remember? I don't recall at the top of my head. Um, but he, basically, he's the number two guy um, in the government at the CDC for um, addressing these this type of. Yeah, and he um, he seems to want people to be afraid, and I think I think concern and uh, responsible behavior and, and all of this is very much required at this time. But it, it seems like fear can, can lead to some fairly irrational outcomes in terms of policies, in terms of personal behavior. And, and I think we need to kind of stay calm and chill out and have a little bit of humility right now instead of everybody freaking out. 
Um, but that doesn't seem to be we don't we don't I don't hear a lot of reason coming from our public officials right now officials right now. Right. Uh, quite the opposite. It seems like and uh, you know, I called this in a, in a conversation with a colleague the other day, basically a race to the bottom of all the different governors and mayors and county officials to see who can get the most extreme uh, version of a policy into place. So it, it'll be governor of New York announces that we're going to be shut through um, April 15th. And then the next state over, it says, no, we're going to do April 30th. And then uh, yesterday we got Ralph Northam announced, well, I'm going to push it all the way to June 10th. So um, it, it's a succession of more and more extreme policies where they almost seem like they're trying to outdo each other. Yeah. And and you've you've written, uh, I've been following you on Facebook, and you, you've written about sort of the perverse incentives for political actors and bureaucratic actors, some, some basic public choice analysis that that argues that doing more is safer than doing what is appropriate because then you can't get blamed because you didn't do enough, didn't do enough. Right, right. So it's uh, the incentive is almost there to, uh, to intentionally overstate the severity of any claim. And we see this in most natural crisis type situations. Uh, so I liken it to uh, whenever there's a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico that's coming uh, toward one of the major metropolitan areas around there, the impulse of policymakers is to always go for the more extreme solution. It's to uh, to say we need to uh, lock down mass areas of the coast, mass evacuations uh, that aren't always in sync with what uh, the actual forecast of the of the hurricane happens to be doing. Yet uh, county officials and city officials will, will, will tend to adopt this type of a policy because the alternative scenario, if they underprepare, if they underestimate what it's going to do, you get uh, Hurricane Katrina 2.0. So uh, no one wants to be in that situation as a public official. What they do want to do is, uh, is be seen as acting, be seen as, uh, as preempting some of the problems that could happen in a worst-case scenario. Uh, whether or not that's a realistic assessment uh, is often set aside to uh, rather the impulse to act itself. And you're seeing, um, I, don't, I don't want to go down a political rabbit hole, but you're seeing the governor of New York, who's now ubiquitous on TV, and right. perhaps um, the one of the certainly one of the leaders in terms of draconian lockdowns. Um, he's now being talked about as a potential replacement for Joe Biden as, as Democratic nominee for president. So, so clearly, politically, uh, the in, the incentives seem to work. Just to be seen as doing something, and that's a whole. Uh, consider this is a, an entirely different question from actually being effective at doing something. Uh, a politician in a time of crisis wants to be in front of the camera, uh, making proclamations that make uh, that they give the the general appearance to the public that this is under control or this is something we're adapting toward or preparing for. And unfortunately, it seems that this type of behavior resonates with quite a few people. Yeah, uh, and, I, I, and I, I don't want to pick on, on Governor Cuomo because as far as I can tell, he seems to authentically want to do the right thing. And your colleague Jeffrey Tucker found some, some pretty amazingly honest um, comments made by Governor Cuomo. And, and I, I talked about this with Congressman Massey. Uh, Government Cuomo expressed what, what I would call the precautionary principle when he said, if all of this shutdown and all of the economic damage caused by this shutdown in New York, um, if we just save one life, this is all worth it. 
And and right. that sounds pretty good. But then then he goes on to say, and I I, I highly recommend everyone read this uh, in various uh, news conferences. He said, "Look, I don't I'm not sure I know what I'm doing. Um, I'm uh, in hindsight, shutting down the schools was probably the exact opposite to th thing to do, and we we probably um, hurt people, um, caused additional mortality by putting kids." with their grandparents, um, because where do kids go when they can't go to school? They got to go somewhere. And I so know. there's, he's at least acknowledging that there are these, these trade-offs and it's not, it's not lives versus economics, it's lives versus lives. And every action has an intended consequence, an unintended consequence, and certainly our ability to, to feed ourselves and our ability to shelter at home safely. Everyone has a very different circumstances. All these things matter. And at least he's acknowledging when he's speaking candidly that that he doesn't know what he's doing. He's just trying to do something. Yeah, yeah. And this cuts back to, um, I think, a deeper economic insight. I keep thinking to Frederick Hayek, and this is a, a familiar quote I'm paraphrasing here, but um, he wrote in this great little book uh, called The Fatal Conceit. He says, the, the curious task of economics is basically to convince people how little they know about what they imagine they can design. And I see this playing out over and over again with governors, mayors, uh, city councils, even all the way up to the president of the United States. Uh, there, there's a, um, a propensity to project that you are in control, that you do have the knowledge to navigate this crisis if only we uh, enact the exact levers that uh, we think are going to mitigate uh, different steps of, uh, of its evolution. So uh, if we go on lockdown this week and then we tighten the lockdown next week, or then maybe before that we had a, implemented a social distancing policy in, in public places, that this is going to yield predictable discernible results that get us to a point of, uh, of disease mitigation that we'd like to be at. Uh, so it's perfectly well-intentioned, but the problem here is there are vast levels of uncertainty underlying all of these decisions uh, to the point that uh, when, when you're actually making some of these projections, uh, the very announcement of the projection it, itself induces people to change their behavior, their response to it. So the result that you were anticipating in the, in the model is in some ways already invalid before the policy itself comes into place. Yeah, and you in one of your posts, I think it was the threat of the Rhode Island governor to right. shut the border with New York. Uh, the very threat of doing that um, induced people to do things that they might not otherwise have done which may have, in fact, uh, spread infection as opposed to containing it. Explain. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So uh, suppose you uh, you live in Rhode Island, or uh, or even more uh, importantly, suppose you live somewhere in the I-95 corridor, which means you have to drive through Rhode Island to get from, say, Boston to New York or vice versa. Uh, so this is a major freeway that goes through this very small state where the governor announced that basically she was going to put checkpoints at the different uh, borders on 95, where you have to pull off in the rest station and register with the state police if you have an out-of-state license plate. And if you were intending to stay in Rhode Island, you'd go into quarantine even. So uh, this is intended to be a, a policy to, to mitigate and prevent the transfer of disease from this hotbed area of New York City further up the coast. Uh, so perfectly well-intentioned, at least as they presented it, but if you think about some of the consequences of a policy like this, you announce that you're going to put an entire state under a, a situation of closed borders and a lockdown associated with that. What happens if you are a resident of Rhode Island or you are a resident 
who has another home somewhere along that corridor that has to pass through Rhode Island. Well, maybe you would have previously been considering sheltering in place, but now you have uh, the situation where uh, maybe for an indefinite time of the future or several months, you're not going to be able to travel. Uh, so what do you do? You throw all, all, all the bags in the back of your car and head on up the freeway before the lockdown takes place, before the, uh, the, the border restrictions come into place. And we see this over and over again with uh, states that have announced this policy. So Florida is another one where the governor has said they want to restrict travel uh, from people that are coming from uh, uh, states in the Northeast uh, that are seeking refuge from this epidemic. Well, quite a few people in the Northeast have second homes or vacation homes down in Florida. So uh, you, you make an announcement that, hey, Florida is going to be cut off to anyone from New York City for the indefinite future, and you're living in New York City, and maybe you were going to ride it out up there. Now, all of a sudden, it becomes a, a, a decision. Do I hop in my car and try to get to Florida, which is less affected, less restricted at the moment than New York, to beat this lockdown? And in the process, you end up uh, moving more people around than would have been the case otherwise. And with them, at least some of them are going to be carrying this virus. So every every policy decision we make, every pronouncement creates uncertainty. It, it creates unintended consequences. This is classic. Um, exactly. Classic economics 101. I want to get back. You, you talked to. Uh, we have a habit of talking about Frederick Hayek on this show, and and yeah. not shockingly to the people that watch this show, I think I think his perspective, and particularly the Austrian perspective, um, has a an important. Um, story to tell in the context of, of, of economic projections, in the context of, of, of COVID mortality projections. And, and the fundamental Austrian insight is the idea that, that people act in a world where we don't know what's going to happen next. We, um, uh, Hayek and other Austrians call this radical uncertainty about the future. And so much of how we behave and, and our economic behavior is influenced by trying to figure out how we how we manage that uncertainty moving forward. And and one of one of the key things of, of the Austrian critique is that it's very difficult to model human behavior based on, on assumptions about what happened in the past because we react to things. We we think things through, we solve problems, we make mistakes. And that process itself is what sort of uh, allows humans to to advance their condition. How do you, how do you apply that to a lot of the um, science projections? The the the, the epidemiologists, uh, particularly the, I guess Neil Ferguson is the guy, right? And and I guess we should explain what that what that model is and, and what they projected before we get into using this this economic critique to understand. What, what it means and what it doesn't mean. Doesn't mean. Yeah, absolutely. So um, epidemiologists are, um, are like most uh, scientists and social scientists. They're modelers. They're forecasters. They're using econometric techniques based on the different data that we have and assumptions about how that data interacts to project uh, what will be the infection rate and what will be the death rate that comes about from the characteristics we know about this disease. And there are some particular tools to epidemiology that are, uh, are uh, unique to that field, but the general approach to forecasting is something you see across the sciences, the hard sciences and the social sciences. Everything from uh, economic forecasting, budgeting, public finance, climate science, uh, uh, physics, chemistry, epidemiology, they all use fairly similar techniques 
to engage in projections into the future based on data that we have. Um, what this does is it allows a typical scientist to uh, generate a model uh, in epidemiology, the, uh, the, the conditions, the, the, the steps that go into the model uh, seem to be mostly combinations of the, of the infection rate, what's known about how, uh, how transmissible a particular disease is, and then also the mortality rate among people that have it. And uh, you can modify some of these assumptions around a bit, but the gist is that you can calculate a forecast based on these known data points uh, that shows how this disease is going to play out. Um, over the coming weeks, months, maybe even years into the future. And that's where you start getting these statistics that the politicians are, are, uh, are citing, mortality rates. Well, uh, one of the uh, approaches to um, um, any type of forecasting across the sciences is that you pick a baseline uh, scenario to go from, and, and most of the epidemiology models that are getting quoted in the press are using a baseline uh, that asks the question, what if we did absolutely nothing? What if we just stayed the course and let this thing play out and transmit naturally through the population? Well, obviously, that's a pretty bad scenario. That's, uh, that's almost the worst-case scenario. And the models that have been put forth, uh, most commonly cited one seems to be this Imperial College model that Neil Ferguson has uh, promoted in the UK, but also extrapolated to the United States. And there are a couple other competitors that come up with the same uh, general gist of a, a do-nothing scenario. Uh, but the short version of it is, is that's where you get these numbers like 2.2 million deaths in the United States uh, if we just stayed, stayed the course and did absolutely nothing. As a scientific exercise, I, I suppose that's fine to figure out where that is. But what you have to consider in these models when they're making, uh, using them to make policy advice, uh, you have to start changing the assumptions based on behavior that actually occurs or that you're trying to induce to occur. Uh, so the theory behind the models, you take this extreme, um, probably unrealistic baseline scenario of mass death if we did nothing, and then you start adding in different modifications to it. So what if we do imp impose social distancing? What if we do go into lockdown? What if there are changes in the way that we approach uh, public health, like washing your hands or uh, using face masks in public? All of these are going to modify the trajectory of, uh, of the projected uh, infection and death rate. Uh, so each different step is itself a modification to the model. So what you find is it, when you start reading these papers in depth rather than the quotes that they're telling the media, they'll say 2.2 million is the extreme do-nothing scenario, but they all back down successive steps to much, much milder projections of, uh, of fatality if certain policies are implemented or even certain behavioral changes are implemented. Now, as I, I understand the uh, Ferguson study, the, the projections of the original paper, which was published, I guess, two weeks ago, was yeah. anywhere from 20,000 deaths to 2.2 million deaths. Right. <laughs> and, and that's based on and various inputs on the, the sort of the science side. Um, you know, what is the infection rate? What is the uh, mortality rate? And and by the way, those those two are mostly conjecture right now because right. we don't we don't have good data, and yeah. and I I would say as a political guy, um, anybody that's using data from China is probably using propaganda to do their science. So we I I sort of suspect that that's not a good place to start on this, but um, so there's all that uncertainty on that side. So these this is all um, it's not science in the sense I, I think I think Hayek again would would warn us about scientism, 
Um, he warned about it in the social sciences, but this is really uh, a social scientific exercise when we try to project uh, mortality and infection rates on something that we know very little about. Um, and we're, we're trying to learn and we're using Italian data and we're using, uh, hopefully we're using South Korean data, um, we're using propaganda from China, whatever the inputs are. But the other half of this is, and, and I think this is where um, the economists at the American Institute for Economic Research, uh, myself, a number of others have said, we're not looking at the changes in human behavior that are going to happen spontaneously because we're self-interested, because we care about our communities, because we don't want this disease to spread. So we're doing things like social distancing. Um, I have uh, voluntarily self-quarantined um, for quite some time now in, in my house, yeah. and, and they ignore all of that. So the, right. and I think you said this, the, the moment they put 2.2 million on paper, it was already invalid because people had been responding uh, naturally to, to changes that made a lot of sense. And we see the evidence of this response all around us. What was the very first thing that happened when coronavirus came onto the horizon as, as like a legitimate real threat? People rushed to the store and they bought up all the face masks and they bought up all the hand sanitizer. There's a, a direct economic indicator of two behavioral steps that are, were being taken by most people uh, just in response to this threat and to mitigate it for themselves. Uh, now, some of those steps have have increased. They've intensified over the past few weeks as uh, kind of the changing conditions of the virus are realized as it's come closer to home, so to speak. But uh, but but people have already uh, violated, I guess, the uh, the basic assumptions that would underlie that worst case scenario model. So another comparison I'd use: um, imagine uh, you have a Category Five hurricane again coming for the uh, a city on the Gulf Coast. It's not realistic to say that everyone in that city would just sit there as, as if business were usual, go about their day until the hurricane hit. The very fact that they know the hurricane out in the Gulf and heading toward them induces most people, the vast majority of the public, to change their behavior. So what do they do? They go down to Home Depot and they buy boards for their windows, or if they're close to the coast, maybe they consider moving inland, uh, fleeing, evacuating the zone that's in threat. Uh, this is automatically a behavioral response before government even lifts a finger that most people know if there's a threat out there. Well, the same thing is true of, uh, of the coronavirus. It would be unrealistic, uh, for example, to project a, um, a damage and destruction rate from a hurricane that assumes do nothing when people are already doing something the moment the hurricane is there. The same is true of the coronavirus. As soon as people realize that this is real, this is a threat, that this is there, uh, they do what you and I are doing. We start to shelter in place. Um, I've curtailed and limited the number of times that I go outside and was doing this long before Ralph Northam or Muriel Bowser or Donald Trump or any any politician anywhere was telling me I needed to do this. This is already a natural behavioral response because I'm risk averse and most other people are risk averse. Uh, one complication, though, there's always um, idiots out there, for lack of a better term, that do... Um, um, a, avoid some of the behavioral recommendations. So, you know, we saw the stories about the, the spring breakers that were partying a, a week or two ago um, as if nothing was happening. And lo and behold, uh, a week later, several of them have come down with coronavirus. Uh, the media likes to portray those cases and depict it as if it's the reality, uh, when, when more often it's just the exception. It's, it's the same as going down to the beach 
the day before the hurricane hits, you can always find like one or two guys out there surfing in it or something. And, uh, and pointing to that as, well, people aren't taking this seriously enough. It's anecdotal examples where it seems to be uh, the vast majority of people have already modified their behavior. Yeah, the, the, the presumption that, that people aren't responsible for their own lives seems, right. seems a little bit ridiculous to me. I, I feel like we've, we've managed uh, a really long time to, to better ourselves and, and to protect our families without uh, the mayor of D.C. telling me to do so. I, my civil libertarian side almost wants to, to go driving around just to just yeah. to, to prove that I, I still get to make decisions for myself. And I know, I know <laughs> someone's going to get mad at me for that, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's absurd. Well, let's go yeah. back to you, you touched on something that that I think is is essential here. This this sort of uh, we're going to find that 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 poor dumb kid who talked to a reporter on the beach, and and that that guy has been he's, he's been more than canceled. I don't know what's happened. Right. It's been pilloried. pilloried. <laughs> he's he's probably disappeared at this point. Um, yeah. But the the uh, media um, in sort of uh, natural their natural incentive is to come up with hysterical headlines yeah. because they're clickable and 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 the political class feeds on that um, this this hysteria seems to have created this policy in the first place and and I know I think some people have misinterpreted Neil Ferguson's yeah. um, uh, re, it's uh, he he did reassess infection rate as I understand yes. it, but he he didn't walk back his original numbers because his original study had a vast number of scenarios, so he, he didn't walk back the two point two, but I feel like um, he was responsible for emphasizing that big number, even though that big number was never a real number number. Right, right. So if you read the actual study, the Imperial College study. It has a whole range of scenarios. It has the extreme do-nothing model, which is 2.2 million, or the UK version of it, I think, was about 400 to 500,000. Uh, so smaller country, but similar drastic death rates. But then the more mild, the more uh, uh, tepid approach to it, uh, these are ones that consider both policy and behavioral responses coming into place are saying uh, something that seems much more realistic. You're talking tens of thousands instead of, uh, of uh, multiple millions. Of fatality, so that's all there in the original model, and he lays it out why uh, uh, this variation occurs and what are the different policy interventions that he thinks will uh, yield the lower fatality rates. Uh, so that, that, that's certainly there in the original presentation, and we can critique that. Uh, I mean, for example, I, I'm skeptical on how reliable and how accurate one can be in projecting the uh, the effect of, of different policy decisions on fatality rates for all the reasons we just discussed. There are just too many variables in a complex system, but nonetheless, he does have those scenarios there. At the same time, though, whenever uh, someone from the media calls up Ferguson or some of these other epidemiologists and say, give us your scenarios, tell us what's going on, they seem to only quote the extreme disaster version of the scenario. They only seem to quote the one that says... Uh, well, if we do nothing, there are going to be 2.2 million deaths, and next thing you know, that's the headline. Uh, Ferguson, unfortunately, um, and I'm not sure that this was like any malicious design more so than just being thrust into the media limelight, they're asking for a soundbite quote, and in both the United States and the UK, he gave them the extreme numbers. He gave them the, uh, the do-nothing scenario of 
500,000 dead or 2.2 million dead for the United States if uh, this thing just plays its course. Uh, but as we've all already discussed, that, that was unrealistic as a scenario the moment it hit paper because people have already modified their behavior. Uh, let alone to say nothing of the uh, the policy decisions that have been made in that time. So I asked the, uh, asked the question, is this responsible communication of scientific results if every time the press calls you only give them the disaster scenario, meanwhile when your actual scientific work, the papers you're using to, uh, uh, to model this thing and hopefully uh, trying to put before uh, policymakers for their decision uh, is saying uh, much more milder outcomes are more likely than this extreme scenario you're giving to the press because the press is going to take that and they're going to drum up hysteria with it, as we've already seen. Yeah, and, and President Trump himself, as he, he originally said, and there's a, there's a fight, there's a debate between the trade-offs from those who are strictly worried about um, containing the virus versus those that are looking at the economic costs and the human lives that, that would be affected um, from, from extreme shutdown scenarios. And, and Trump has been listening to both those sides. He originally said, uh, we're going to, uh, we really need to get this economy going by Easter. And now he's walked that back and he explicitly threw out that 2.2 million death number in the United yeah. States to justify that. Yeah, yeah, it's the same one that was all over the headlines. Um, one of the areas where I think I've been more critical of Ferguson than some others is that he was still touting the uh, the extreme scenario, the do-nothing scenario with 2.2 million deaths, uh, even after many of these uh, these shutdown and lockdown policies came into place, and certainly after the social distancing uh, convention came into place. So um, I, I do question whether that's a responsible way to communicate with the public. Uh, so I think as recently as about March 20th, which is, uh, if you watch your timeline, that's one to two weeks after most areas of the United States had started to implement various types of shutdown and lockdown, he was still quoting the do-nothing scenario to the press, and the press, of course, is running with it. So one of my friends uh, in the uh, world of cancer treatment had told me that some governors have, have uh, decided in all of these um, sort of top-down commandments on how we're going to, to deal with this problem, that uh, chemotherapy treatments and other cancer treatments are now uh, determined to be elective. Right. <laughs> and, and, this, and this gets me to, uh, we got about 10 minutes left, and I want to talk about the sort of the economic consequences on lives and mortality of doing the wrong thing, because we, we haven't focused enough on this, but but the idea, I'm, I'm a cancer survivor, so the idea that a, that a governor would tell me that, that treatment for cancer is, right. is an elective thing, that's insane. Right. That is, that is the, the most arrogant and, and arguably deadly thing you could say. So talk a little bit about the economic trade-offs and, and what are the consequences to human health of, of these shutdowns? Yeah, I think it, there's been an unfortunate tendency especially in the press, to frame this as a human lives versus the economy type of a trade-off, where, uh, you know, on one side you have all these steps that are taken supposedly to protect human lives from this virus, uh, very well-meaning, but uh, but certainly that's the, uh, uh, the, the, the claim that's being made. And then on the other hand, they're saying, well, uh, yes, we're, we're giving up economic wealth, we're giving up economic growth in order to protect human lives. But it's actually a much more complicated trade-off between that. Uh, it's protecting human lives maybe from the virus with specific policies targeted at that, but we also know 
uh, that uh, there's an opportunity cost associated with those decisions. There's quite a bit of evidence, uh, even from economic recessions in the past, that they cause spikes in other types of fatalities. Uh, they cause suicide rates and depression to go through the roof when people are, uh, are out of work, out of job, uh, have uncertainty about their income streams for the future. Uh, there was, a, I think, one study after the Great Recession, the financial crisis period, uh, which estimated a, a, a radical spike in what they call excess deaths from suicide just as a response of the economic depression uh, that had set in. Uh, so that's one consequence. There were also uh, uh, points of data that have shown and estimated that in previous economic downturns, people defer their treatments on other types of, uh, of medical illnesses, one of them being cancer. Uh, think about it this way. You lose your job. You also probably lose your health insurance. Uh, maybe that treatment that uh, you were planning for next month to address something that in the long term is going to be very consequential to your health now gets deferred for a few months or even a few years until you're back on a sounder economic footing. So that decision has to be brought into the equation. And what we find is uh, when you start aggregating this together, uh, when you consider it in mass, the effect of people deferring treatments on things like uh, like cancer, just uh, just basically long-term mitigation of cancer uh, tends to go up in economic downturns, and the result is that you have higher fatality rates from cancer overall in the long run, uh, even though you may be doing something in the short run that's addressing this very different type of a disease. So I think of uh, Frederick Bastiat, and, and one of my favorite uh, quotes from him is, is a passage in Economic Sophisms where he talks, he wonders at the marvel of Paris being fed. Yeah. And he's, yeah. he's writing in the 1800s, and he's noticing that nobody in Paris seems to care about the fact that if the food doesn't show up on the shelves the next day, um, people would starve, people would panic, um, all sorts of really horrible things would happen. And, and yet, somehow, because of market forces and, and people doing jobs in this distributed uh, division of labor, all of the things that economists write about, that, that Paris is fed and Paris is sleeping and Paris is safe. Um, when I look at politicians um, dismissing or ignoring the economic consequences of their action, or deciding uh, which job is essential versus which job is non-essential, I, I think they're working from a radical ignorance of, of understanding this distributed division of labor. Um, yes, um, people that deliver food to your door are essential. Yes, grocery stores are essential. Yes, pharmacies are essential. But what about that infinite number of people and functions and companies and workers that support all the things that that make sure that all those things happen, and and this is something that I don't think Americans think about at all because food magically shows up, our iPhones magically show up, but we are seeing in 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 countries like India, uh, Modi has taken a radical shutdown approach, and there is no social safety net. There is no means for poor people in India to feed themselves if they're not allowed out to work. So in this consequent in this case it's an extreme case but in this case economic shutdowns mean people starving to death right right there's a, it's a focus on upon to, to, to borrow again from Bastiat that which is seen and what is seen is the virus what is seen is this uh, this pandemic threat to the neglect of what is unseen and what what is unseen is um, 
often a product of the case of our human condition of ignorance. Uh, it's impossible to understand and coordinate and fully decipher all of the economic activities that are happening at any one moment. So uh, th th there's a very radical presumption that's almost uh, being adopted as policy when you enact a shutdown. You're saying that I, as governor of the state or mayor of the city, know what is essential. I know what is necessary and what is not. And I can easily categorize, I can, I can parse society into essential things, which may be food delivery, uh, medicine, and pharmacies, and then non-essential things, which is everything else. Add to that the enforcement arm of the state, uh, giving police the power to pull people over at uh, the border on the on the highway stop, or giving police the power to disperse someone who's in public for the wrong reason. That's an assumption of knowledge that uh, the state itself is very ill-suited to, uh, to even comprehend or possess. Uh, an average policeman has no idea why a person walking down the street at random is out there. It could be uh, maybe they're going on a, a jog or a joyride or something, or maybe they're in, a, in an urgent rush to, uh, to get to a relative's house because they need to take them to a doctor's office. Uh, but that's only known to the person themselves that's traveling. Uh, when you start enacting these blanket policies, uh, you are taking that element of knowledge out of the decision and presuming it on, on, on behalf of the state that there are easily parsed and discernible uh, reasons to even be out and about. So uh, one of the problems that comes about with any of these shutdown policies is they tend to uh, uh, veer toward uniform, one-size-fits-all approaches to uh, economic behavior, what's permissible and what's not permissible. But one-size-fits-all very, very seldom mirrors what's actually happening in society. And that's just an open recipe, an open invitation to make decisions that unintentionally and possibly even out of the, the best motives of reasons of stopping the coronavirus, but they unintentionally stop people from doing things that end up being actually very essential to their well-being, to their health, to their safety in a time of pandemic. Right. What a perfect way to close out this interview. I urge everybody to take the responsibility to, to, to get schooled up up on, yeah. on all of this stuff. I think we all need to know more. The, the intellectual division of labor, unfortunate um, before our eyes as politicians sort of do all of these things. Um, and uh, the American Institute for Economic Research has just published a book. It's amazing that you guys content to publish a book on the economic consequences of the coronavirus. Uh, tell us about that. And tell us about where people can find out more about uh, the research that you guys are working on right now. Right, right. So uh, one of the unintended uh, effects of being in lockdown for the past several weeks is uh, we all have time to sit around in front of a computer and research and write. Uh, so just yesterday, um, AIER released a book called um, Coronavirus and the Economic Crisis. It's edited by my colleague, Peter Earle, and contains just an assortment of all of our essays uh, thematically arranged, uh, exploring all the different policy and economic dimensions of this crisis as it unfolds. Uh, so we put it together over the last few weeks, uh, just released it yesterday. You can get it on Amazon, although um, I checked a few hours ago and they were already backlogged for it. So it's, it's taking off to kind of a, a, a surprise bestseller which we think is um, is good because a lot of people are, are sitting around at home trying to find information. They're starved for information about how to navigate not just uh, the disease itself, 
but the, uh, the, the likely policy and economic consequences of the disease. Uh, so what we're trying to do is offer a foray into that conversation to uh, draw attention to economic issues and opportunity costs and unintended consequences that many of the media uh, pundit class and politicians are not paying too much attention to and offer that as a way to contextualize how we navigate this crisis together. Did I just hear you say that people are hoarding AIER content like toilet paper right now? That seems to be the case. Hopefully they're using it for other reasons, but uh, but they're, um, uh, it's been a very uh, sudden, sharp, uh, almost un unanticipated, un unexpected surge of interest in this particular book. So um, I, I take that as a sign that people are starved for information and they're looking for... Uh, reasonable, intelligent commentary, not to tell them what to do during the crisis, but to help them uh, consider what some of the effects are and contextualize it in a rational way that they can uh, uh, better understand what's unfolding around us and, and hopefully put some more uh, prudent breaks on some of the excesses of the political and media class. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I for one, have, have always had uh, more faith in the wisdom of crowds and of free right. people to figure out problems and sort of ceding all of that decision making to to an expert, particularly one with with unfettered power. Uh, thank you, Phil Magnus, and and please be safe out there and keep yeah, doing you what you're doing. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.